welcome to Tangents. I'm Jerry Brito, Executive Director of Coin Center. And with me, as always, I've got Peter Van Valkenburg, uh, Director of Research at Coin Center. Hi, Peter. Hey, Jerry. As uh, always, you're never going to do one of these without me? It's, well, I think that's the new format, right? The new format is, well, I guess you're right. Maybe maybe it can be like me and Naraj talking about. I, I'm always here, Jerry. About um, so today we wanted to talk about um, a, a new backgrounder that we published on what is staking. And we've also published a blog post um, uh, to go along with it. And maybe the first thing we should talk about is why we did this. and. The reason we, we publish a backgrounder explaining what is staking, and by the way, backgrounders, we've got different kinds of uh, publications on our website. We've got blog posts, which are what they sound like. We've got um, reports, which are typically an exploration of you know sort of the something in the crypto world and what we think the law is and what the th we think the law should be. And long form with footnotes. That's right. Go, Andrea, great depths of gratitude. Yeah. And then we have backgrounders, and backgrounders or explainers, we sometimes call them, are just the facts, plain English explanations of a particular piece of the technology or a particular aspect of the law or their combination sometimes. And again, just to explain something in a sort of just the facts, hey, we're not trying to uh, uh, tell you what the law should be, but folks in Congress on the agency sometimes don't understand, and we just want to give them a, hey, this, this thing is just the facts. We can then talk to you about a report we published about what the law should be. Uh, but this is just a fact. I feel like and, there's a whole there's a whole category of backgrounders too. Starting with the first backgrounder we published, which was the mining, what yeah. is what is Bitcoin mining? Why is it necessary? Uh, that is sort of like a an apologia or like a like a, a like a please forgive the community for having new terms. Right. New terms emerged and had to be invented uh, that are not used precisely and therefore can be confusing when you as a policymaker are trying to just learn about how the technology works and where it might intersect with your laws or, or regulations. And with that mining one, a lot of it was like, yeah, it was, it was you know, the name that was picked by the community and at no specific moment by no specific person, yeah, it emerged yeah. is mining, which accurately captures part of what mining is all about. You know, you have to expend resources uh, to get resources to get Bitcoin at the end or to actually create them to, to pull them out of physics of the earth where they're locked up. Uh, but it doesn't convey the other useful part, which is they're doing this really valuable thing. It's not just selfish. It's not just um, destroying energy for no reason. They're validating a public ledger of transactions um, and they're sharing that ledger with the world and they're creating censorship resistance. And so the staking backgrounder is kind of like that. It's like a lot of people just are using this term now and sometimes they're using it for different things, right? Yeah, and I think part of what motivated us to put this out is we often hear the word staking being used in lots of different contexts. And some people are using it um, more accurately than others, and we worry about how that's being heard. So a good example is uh, Chairman Gensler from the SEC. You'll often hear him say how staking platforms are very, you know, are possibly or likely, you know, uh, doing securities offerings, right? He's even said this in congressional testimony. Yeah. And I think he's pretty careful. I think when he says staking platforms, he is probably referring to custodial exchanges that are offering staking rewards. But the members of Congress who are hearing him in testimony here are staking platforms, and they're just thinking that anybody who provides a staking service 
is somehow issuing a security. And yeah. so we wanted to tease all of that out. Yeah. I mean, what, what, one of the, speci- there's a specific hearing, should probably have come up with the link yeah. to it before we did this podcast, but there was a specific hearing where I'm pretty sure there was a question from one of the members of Congress that was um, framed in the vein of DeFi and decentralized yeah. protocols and rewards from staking. And the answer from Chairman Gensler was, um, well, it's all going to come down to the terms of service of the platform. And so Gary was probably talking about custodial cryptocurrency exchanges that offer staking rewards for people who keep their cryptocurrency there. I'm not sure if he was also talking about DeFi. It would not make sense in some cases, though, because you know, if you are staking Tezos on the Tezos network, there's no terms of service. They just the, the, There should be or there shouldn't be. That could be a policy question. The Uh, the protocol are the terms of service. But they don't even exist, so it could could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that's what we were trying to get at. And so um, let's, I guess, talk about, um, you know, what are the main kinds of staking? So the word staking is used in different contexts. What are the different uh, contexts in which we we sort of divide In this background, we we divided it into into two categories. The first category is sort of like an A and a B, so it's kind of three categories. Uh, And the first category is um, participating, which I don't mean in any official capacity. Like, I don't mean there's a definition of participating. I just mean joining a peer-to-peer network and participating in its consensus mechanism, which is proof-of-stake-based consensus. And, you know, we don't need to go like probably most of our listeners on this podcast are above crypto 101. So we don't need to explain why proof of stake is a consensus mechanism that exists in the world. Um, and all we do, uh, you know, in the in the background is say, look, um, proof I just of say, mining. Yeah, go ahead. If there's somebody listening who does need to understand that, go check out the background. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so the short version of that first explanation of that first category is like, look, um, you don't need to know a lot of details about these plat- these platforms, about these protocols. You just need to know that like proof of work works because it's a carrot and a stick, right? And the carrot is you could earn a mining reward. You could create a mining reward. Uh, and the stick is you have to spend a lot of real value in order to have eligibility to create, potentially create a mining reward. And the stick in Bitcoin is, of course, you have to spend that value in the form of provable computing cycles using electricity and, you know, usually somewhat semi-specialized computer chips like ASICs and improve the stake. And it's a stick because if you don't follow the protocol rules. Yeah. You have no chance to win unless you first suffer a cost. Right. And so you're going to have to suffer a cost. And then if you're honest, you should earn a reward over time. Not necessarily the first time you make a proof, but maybe one, you know, one day. Um, And with proof of stake, it's the same Functionally, it's a functional equivalent um, because you're sacrificing the availability of your stake of the cryptocurrency in some way. It could be that it's like a bonded proof of stake where you can't access the cryptocurrency while you're staking it. It could be that you you could suffer slashing penalties if you did something wrong. But you know, the stake is you had to suffer a cost, and that is the stake, the time value of money, or you know, something like that. So that's yeah. how we explain that first category. And also just to be, just to maybe bring it up at this point uh, for folks who are listening, something else that I think um, folks 
uh, and we saw this with the recent hearing on mining, um, there's a there can be conflation between different consensus mechanisms where they'll say, okay, so they're functionally the same, Mr. Bitcoin, you know, you, you guys spend a lot of electricity. Why don't you just use proof of stake? Why don't you stop by boiling the oceans? And yeah. Yeah. And, and so something that we um, make clear in the background as well is, yeah, they're functionally equivalent, but doesn't mean they're equivalent. Okay. They're not perfect substitutes. And that's a term in, econ uh, in economics that you can go look up. So you have, uh, an electric vehicle, and you have an internal combustion uh, engine vehicle, right? And they're functionally equivalent. They get you from point A to point B, but they're not the same, yeah. right? One has different range than the other, better range than the other. One has better acceleration than the other. Um, they both have relative safety differences, mm -hmm. right? And so if you're going to pick between what you're going to do, which one are you going to use? Well, depending on what you're going to do and what you want, and personally, you're going to pick you know, a, a different one. You can't yeah. just tell a long haul, a long haul trucker to just swap out their Mack trucks engine for an EV. I love this metaphor. Uh, this is your metaphor um, that, that we suck into the backgrounder. Um, I love this metaphor for a couple of reasons. Uh, it goes back to early uh, briefings we used to give where, where people are like, what is blockchain? And we were like, blockchain is vehicle. There's all kinds of vehicles. You can't, like, no one talks about vehicle policy. They talk about, like, cars and buses and rockets. So there's that, there's that element to it. But I think that, it, like, the, the other thing is, like, sure, uh, you know, some types of cars, as far as internal combustion or electric, might be better for municipal buses. Mm -hmm. Some might be better for long-haul trucking. Some might be, and so... While they're functionally equivalent because they all move you from point A to point B, they have different costs and benefits. But n in no situation would you ever say that one is absolutely superior. And, and the other thing I think that the metaphor works for, and I didn't add this to the backgrounder, but I was tempted to after, after hearing your metaphor, was it's interesting that in the history of automobiles, in the very early days of cars, there were like three competing engine designs. Oh, yeah. One was, I think one was internal combustion. Um, which was really noisy and dangerous in the early days because combustion. Uh, the other was batteries, which actually weren't that bad. It's just that they didn't get better, whereas internal combustion got a lot better, right? And the third was uh, compressed air. You could like <laughs> you could like use use an engine in your home to put air into a, a tank, yeah. which would then spin a wheel, and then you could get it. <laughs> you know, and and also the important thing here is. Uh, to the extent that maybe, you know, to the extent there is some kind of externality that policymakers want to address, yeah. the way to address that is not to look at different, you know, consensus mechanisms, right? Because by the way, those are not just the only two. There's proof of space time. <laughs> there is you know, lots of other ones and say, well, we're going to pick this one or that one. Yeah. The way to look at it is maybe as an energy question or whatever the externality may be, that's the proper place for governments not to pick particular um, yeah. technologies. And because, because we're not even looking at this, like it, we're not in 2010 thinking about the different, 2020 thinking about the difference between internal combustion and electric vehicles right now. Yeah. We're literally in like 1910 when those early automobile designs were competing. We have no idea what the next hundred years is gonna bring as far as efficiency of different models. And if policymakers were to put their finger on the scales of one mechanism versus another, it would you like it could be as bad as as saying in 1910 that like compressed air cars. That's the future. That's the good one. We're going to give them subsidies and we're going to tax everyone. <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want policy like that. It's not good for anyone. So that's 
Okay, so that's a big cat. The first big category is sort of participating in the consensus uh, mechanism yep. or protocol of a cryptocurrency network that employs proof of stake. And we don't say this in the background, but honestly, I think that's probably the only thing that should be called staking. Yeah, I agree. For simplicity's sake. Yep. But, the, but, that, but this is what we're yeah. getting at, is the fact that words, you can't control people use them, people no. use them in different ways. Yeah. So, so then, then there's also a 1B, if you will, before we get to category yeah. two. And 1B is um, staking services or staking as a service, where... Um, you know, the way we explain this is, look, we already know it's very difficult for an ordinary person to mine Bitcoin, for example. It takes pretty specialized hardware, usually ASICs, um, for other proof-of-work cryptocurrencies, GPUs, um, like graphics, um, um, gaming, computers. Um, Not just one, but many. And many in We're a rack, really yeah, right. with like, like the one that we built and then didn't maintain well and collecting dust in our WeWork, sadly. Um, but so, so we already know that it's difficult to mine on a proof of work network. I think there's a misconception or, or maybe just, a something people haven't thought about unless they're involved in this space that proof of stake will be easier because, oh, well, you don't have to have specialized hardware. You just have to have a stake in the cryptocurrency. But it turns out that most proof of stake consensus mechanisms are also not easy for an ordinary person to just run in their home or office or something like that. And that's because they require really good availability or liveliness of the connection to the rest of the network. And you could get penalized in, say, a slashing mechanism or just um, blocks that you could have earned rewards and foregone if your computer periodically dips offline and doesn't do the job it's supposed to do as a staking yeah, a staker in relay and validate transactions on the network and make blocks. And so we've seen the emergence of people who provide staking services. But this is interesting because it's distinct from like a custodial exchange. It's a situation where the staker, the person who's putting their cryptocurrency uh, up for stake in the mechanism, doesn't lose control of it. They don't hand it to another person. They don't, they don't, make a transaction sending it to an address with the private keys or the other person controls the, the crypto. You retain the crypto. The only thing this other person is doing is taking your proof that you've locked it down or whatever or, or, or want to participate in the protocol, taking the proof and then doing the collecting the transactions from the mempool, bundling them into a block, announcing that block to the network, hoping that that block is the, is the, next, is the next block or they're the first to create the next block. And so in this relationship, you have a service provider of a sort, but I would argue, and I, I think it's a completely reasonable point, that this is a lot like uh, more of an infrastructure provider. They're just providing sort of cloud services. They're, they're not custodial. They're not putting the customer's um, money at risk. It's just more much like a communications and, yeah. and networking feature. Uh, they, they're basically uh, AWS, Amazon AWS, yeah. right? providing compute for you to access. And the important thing, which we'll get to when we get to number two, is a service provider like this never takes custody of the cryptocurrency that's being staked. Yeah. And just as importantly, never takes custody of any rewards right. that the staker earns. Those rewards, when the, when the, when the staker successfully uh, uh, validates and gets a reward, that goes directly from the protocol to the address controlled solely by the staker. Service yep. provider, again, is just providing communications and computing services. Yeah. 
So what's number two? <laughs> one and one B. I had something else to say about one B, but it flew out of my head. You're mesmerizing, Terry. Okay. All right. So number two. So category two is custodial uh, exchanges, usually uh, where people park their cryptocurrency. Maybe it's where they bought their cryptocurrency to begin with. I know what I wanted to say about one and one B before we oh, get to two. I think I do too now. It's that. Again, I feel like there's so many caveats as you write more deeply about this. This topic. is the third rail of crypto policy, Jerry. Yeah. So stepping um, right on it. We recognize that there are many proof of stake chains out there with many different mechanisms who all do it in slightly different ways. And they may not all use the same words. We recognize that. But we're addressing a lay audience here. Yeah. And so for simplicity. We yeah we talk we don't we don't discuss things like delegation or delegated stake or or even, or bonded proof of stake like like at the, at the core we're just talking about a stick and a carrot and right. that's very equivalent to Bitcoin and what happens yeah. is that you will have one or two staffers or people at the agencies who will follow up and be like I want to learn more and then we get to that proof you know, <laughs> I'm waiting for the inevitable well what about baking. That's what <laughs> right? Like, what about the rolls? Are the rolls the same as bucks? What's that? <laughs> I remember what, what I wanted to say, which is yeah. another thing on this sort of third rail, uh, yeah. stepping on the third rail. Um, when we say that, you know, someone who's maybe, you know, providing staking as a service, um, sort of the infrastructure communication capacity, that's not in some ways significant. We're talking about to the policy questions involved. Right. Like, money transmission licensing or securities issuance. I'm not saying that, you know, the fact that there are sort of like AWS providers for cryptocurrency staking networks, I'm not saying that that doesn't have implications for centralization. It probably has very similar implications for centralization as overly centralized mining pools in proof of work environments. Yeah. Like if, if everyone ends up submitting their proofs through one guy, doesn't matter if they're non-custodial, it's still bad for the network. Right. But it probably does matter from a public policy standpoint that they're non-custodial because they really just then don't fit the definition of money transmitter. There might be other ills in a, a more you know computer science perspective or market perspective, but not the kind of ills that we currently address through law and policy. And that's what we're focused on. And that's what we're focused on. Correct. All right, back to number two. Yeah, so you, you said um, the kind of staking that people do at an exchange, or okay. it doesn't have to be an exchange, right? You could imagine a yeah. company that merely offers staking services. They take custody of people's cryptocurrencies. They then pull those together, stake yeah. them, get returns, and give some amount of that. So it could be, it's, I mean, 99% of the time, these are exchanges who, who are doing this. Yeah, so, so like to us, because we're thinking about the public policy ramifications here, the interesting difference is custody versus non-custody. Because at right. that point, you've and you've injected more traditional financial services like trust into the relationship. And if that trust is betrayed, then the person would have no recourse potentially, unless there was legal recourse. Um, you know, this person should have been registered as a money transmitter. They should have, you know, any any number of other things that would provide mm -hmm. consumer protections. And by the way. Just, just to take a step back from a consumer perspective, like why do these things exist, right? Um, you can, I kind of see it as a spectrum of ease of use for a consumer. So at the far end, most difficult would be staking yourself, right? Yeah. And you, 
it's it's you know you'd have to vitalik um, calls it the, the mountain man philosophy of validating <laughs> networks like you're gonna you're gonna compile the whole blockchain and you're gonna do everything yourself you build your own well, you know there's something to be said I, i'm I, a, i'm I, team I, mountain man personally. i love mountain man yeah. i want to be one myself but i have to live in dc because you made it a condition of working at coins <laughs> um uh once the the federal government goes truly remote then we can all um so yeah so you have the mountain man approach at the very uh, at one end where you know it's difficult but if you apply yourself it's you can do it you and can you have to make an investment and all that depending on the network too like with yeah. bitcoin you definitely could do it because the blocks are fairly small and you yeah. might not be that competitive but you might not be that competitive depending on yeah uh then sort of short of that you have the staking as a service where you've got to be technically competent uh probably to use this although i don't know really what the um the interfaces are like out there these days um but you at the very at the very least you've got to be competent enough to secure your own wallet yeah. right um, and to know that and to even know that that's something you want to do right? right you know and then sort of most easy you know easiest for a consumer is you know maybe they're already buying uh, cryptocurrency as an investment cryptocurrency that they're buying ha you know is part of a proof of stake network they would love the, the people who they're already trusting to custody their funds for them yeah. to stake it, participate in the validation of the network, and they can get some of the reward. Yeah. And this this also goes to the sophistication of the persons involved because yep. maybe they didn't even know that they bought a cryptocurrency yeah. that could earn staking rewards if they held it themselves and staked it. And maybe it's the place where they're holding it, a cryptocurrency exchange, more often than not, that will that will be the first to tell them. Oh, you bought this one. Did you know that when you stake this, you can participate in an open consensus mechanism and earn the rewards from validating transactions on the network as yeah. a public good? And they're like, I don't oh, even say that. Me, I don't even know what half those words meant. <laughs> I will do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. And so what you have there is, uh, again, custody of the uh, cryptocurrency is being staked custody of the rewards, if any, that come in, and then a payout to the account balance yep. at the exchange. Minus fees. Minus fees. Probably, but yeah, possibly. And so that is probably what uh, Gary Gensler is referring to when he talks about staking platforms um, being uh, potentially uh, subject to the securities laws. Right. And so what I would ask you now, Peter, is if he's right, why is he? Why would he be right? Why would he be saying that? What's the case law here? Yeah. So I, I think you know. I think some people think that the reason that, and that we should probably stop um, psychoanalyzing Gary Gensler and just yeah. talk generally about any anyone interested in securities laws who's in who, who's in government. I think the first thing that we might think is that they believe that the cryptocurrency itself is a security. Right. And that, that is possible. That's a whole separate inquiry with regards to the Howey test and whether the developers have made ongoing promises and all sorts of other things like that. But that's not what we're talking about. And I don't think that's actually usually like the right argument here. If you thought this was in the jurisdiction, there's, there's a different reason why this might be in the SEC's jurisdiction. So if, if, we, if we set that aside and say, no, the cryptocurrency is, it's, it's like Bitcoin. It's, you know, there's a finite number of them. 
you don't get any promises contractually or, or even, you know, inferred contractually from the issuer. In fact, the issuer is long gone and they got hit by a bus and the network's just running. It's a commodity like asset. You know, it is what it is what it is. You're buying the item. You're not buying promises that you expect in the future from from the issuer. So if we set that aside and we say it's, it's a commodity, then the argument would be, well, how could this be, you know, within the SEC's jurisdiction? Because the SEC regulates securities and exchanges who help you trade securities. Well, there's some cases that are kind of weird. Um, and these, these cases have to do with, in the past, where someone was offering a product that wasn't really a security, but we're offering it along with other promises, right? And so all of these cases, and I think we've actually talked about them before on tangents in another yeah. context, usually have to do with like bank-issued products, like certificates of deposit. And, you know, certificate of deposit is interesting because it is a promise from an entity to pay you a, a return over time, and you can't even get out of it. So you're, you're really kind of risking your capital in a way until the expiration of the, secure, of the certificate of deposit. And so the first thing to say is that, well, actually, courts found that CDs, certificates of deposit and other interest bearing accounts at banks are not securities. And you might go, oh, well, isn't that interesting? And mm -hmm. it's not because of some Illuminati conspiracy where like the banks get to do things that ordinary people can't do because we like the banks. It's because the banks, in the Supreme Court's opinion, in um, the Reeves case and the Marine Bank case, they have other regulatory structures in place that sort of eliminate, and this 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 might be over generous, but eliminate the risk to the consumer. There's federal deposit insurance. There, you can't even engage in this activity without first getting a, a federal bank charter or a state banking charter. There's minimum capital controls. There's a lot of heavy duty regulation that supplants or obviates the need for securities style regulation. It, it's not that one's yeah. better than the other. It's just one will fill in where the other isn't there, right? Yeah, and we've talked about Reeves in the past in the context of stable coins. And if That's you go right. back and listen to the tangents episode on stable coins, we talk about Reeves a lot because stable coins, depending again on you know who issues them and how, yeah. if they're being issued by a bank or something essentially like a bank, well, they um, may well be doing it under supervision of an authority that supplants securities regulation under Reeves. That's right. And so if you're a cryptocurrency exchange and you're promising returns on, on amounts that people deposit with you or, or keep with you. You might say, well, if it's not a security when the banks do it, why is it not a, why is it a security when we do it? And the simple and maybe too obvious answer is, well, you didn't get chartered as a bank. You don't have FDIC insurance. Right. And so it's, it's hard to say this is definitely not securities issuance, even though there's, there's returns being promised in our terms of service um, because these things aren't securities. Well, you know, you're not regulated like a bank, so you can't really avail yourself of those same defenses in the, in those cases in Reeves and Marine Bank. And the other thing you might argue, if you were a custodial exchange, is, well, we're not really promising the returns. In fact, we explicitly disclaim that we're promising any returns to staking. Um, we're simply uh, holding someone's cryptocurrency for them and giving them whatever that cryptocurrency would earn on a, on a proof of stake consensus network that they'd otherwise be able to get if they held it themselves. And so it's not our terms of service. It's just, we're gonna do what you would do and give you whatever happens when it happens, you know, with your consent. It's not us. Right. You, can, you can, you can imagine this would be probably very improbable 
but you can imagine um, having an amount of cryptocurrency with an exchange, allowing them to stake it for you. They stake it for you and they never get a reward after a year, right? right? So if you look at terms of services for some of these services, they'll, they'll say that. They'll say, we're not, we're not guaranteeing any return. We're, we'll only give you a return based on what the protocol rewards yeah. minus some fees. And, and I do think this argument as a way to say that securities laws shouldn't and wouldn't make sense to apply is, is, is okay. The thing is, though, that there's case law that's pretty well on point even for this fact pattern. And that's another case that we've discussed previously on tangents called the Gary Plastic. Um, I forget the full name. It was uh, a weird case where Gary Plastic was a small New York business, I think, and they were suing Merrill Lynch, a big financier, uh, saying Merrill Lynch sold us CDs, certificates of deposit, coming back again. And we know, because this case happens after Reeves and Marine Bank, um, CDs aren't securities, but we don't like the fact that Merrill Lynch made other promises in addition to selling us a non-security. They promised us that we'd be able to sell it back on a marketplace that they maintain if we wanted to get out of our investment before the termination of the CD. Because that's the whole thing about CDs is you're locked in for five years, for 10 years. Well, Merrill Lynch was saying, don't worry, we'll transfer that to somebody else on our marketplace who wants to buy it if you ever want to sell it. So they were promising that you could get out of it. They were promising that if the bank that issued the CD, because it's not Merrill Lynch issuing the CD, they're just selling it to their customers. If the bank that issued it goes bankrupt or defunct, Merrill Lynch was saying, we will claim the FDIC insurance on your behalf. So you won't, you won't have to do that. We will do that for you. And they were promising, um, they were promising to help you find the best rate, the best, the lowest, most valuable CD, or the highest interest rate, most valuable CD on the market, so that you didn't accidentally get stuck in a CD that was, you know, you know suboptimal. And and the court said in Gary Plastic, yeah, CDs still aren't securities. So Merrill Lynch breathes a sigh of relief. They're like, oh, we're good. But when you made those other three promises, a liquid market to sell it to sell it back for the for the buyer. Um, finding good rates for them and claiming the deposit insurance in the event of a failure, those promises along with the non-security asset together are an investment contract. And that is what you were offering to Gary Plastic, to this company that wanted to invest its money. Sometimes at Entryway. Ah, Google. I put my computer next to Google. That is what you were offering. And because of that, um, you were offering a security. And so I'm not saying this is a slam dunk because the fact patterns are different, right? right. Um, staking rewards are very different um, than, than, than interests from a CD. The things that these exchanges are doing when they hold your cryptocurrency for you are different than what Merrill Lynch had to do as far as finding good you know, CDs from banks and creating a marketplace to buy them and sell them. But there are obvious similarities in that if you buy a proof of stake cryptocurrency on an exchange, you kind of expect to be able to sell it back on that same exchange. Right. They may not promise that you'd be able to, but you kind of expect that. You expect that if they screwed up the staking and got you know penalized or something through a slashing fee, depends on the protocol again, that they'd make it good, that you wouldn't right. lose your, your crypto because they screwed it up. They're, they're, they're taking on other promises, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, let's be, 
clear though. They, they, you might assume those things, and they might not do anything to dissuade you, but they're not making those promises. It's certain, and by the way, they're just probably disclaiming them in yeah. their terms of service. So that there is. But the SEC yeah. usually doesn't care oh. much about formalities yep. than the economic realities of the transaction, right. which you can say is is a good approach or a bad approach. It's the approach the SEC takes. Right. So bottom line, and I, I think that's pretty much we've said everything we need to say. Bottom line, um, I think when we see policymakers talk about this and sometimes when we talk to them, what they focus on is the marketing. And sometimes the marketing that you see, you might see it on a um, custodial exchange or you might see it um, at a non-custodial staking service. They'll say something like X percent APY, yeah, right? Some kind of potential. And when they see that, they, to them, it's equivalent. And it sounds like banking and interest and securities. And so it's so it's so like brazen, you yeah. know? Because in a lot of cases, it's incredibly brazen. Yeah, it's, yeah, but, but I mean, but it, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying this is the kind of return you can expect if you stake, you know, uh, if, if it's true, if it's accurate, you know, you, and, and if what you're doing is legal, <laughs> um, you should be able to say this is what you can expect. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think part of the part of what also has catches policymakers' attention is that uh, very often these days the uh, percent interest that you can expect to get is probably way higher than what Treasury bills offer. And so again, that just that raises alarm bells. And so what we're doing here is sort of saying, we get why you will, you, know, you might be looking into this, but here are the distinctions and yeah. here are the different uh, uh, risks. And honestly, it's not very different than what we had to do five, six, seven years ago, explaining the different types of wallets. Yeah, um, yeah you're right. It's very exactly, similar. Exactly the same. It's, it's like, you've got you know full self-custody where you have a browser or an app and you're holding your own. You're probably a very sophisticated person. You're definitely not acting on someone else's behalf. So you're not a money transmitter, obviously. And then there's that middle ground where it's like a multi-sig wallet that's really well designed. But at the end of the day, this company can't lose your funds because they only have one out of three keys, not money transmission. But then there's, you know, full custody. If it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. You know, how is what they're doing different than what PayPal does when they hold your dollars for you? That's probably money transmission, and this is kind of similar. It's, and yeah. it's very, yeah, it, that's that's a good point. It's very much the same, and I don't think people realize um, that back in the day, you know, seven eight years ago, we started having to explain, oh no, blockchain.info, where it's just basically a website that generates a key pair for you on your device. Yeah, they're not a money transmitter, <laughs> like which uh, now it's sort of secondhand. Um, not secondhand, uh, second nature to regulators, mm -hmm. but it took years. Um, and now I think we're maybe in the same spot with this. And I, 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 you know, it's interesting. It just occurred to me, remembering all the work we did back then on wallets, there's something we used to say back then that we should say again here. Well, when we talk about laws not applying to these things, we're talking about like prior restraint, licensing yeah. or pre-registration type laws. Yeah. Like, Securities law is heavy duty regulation. So is money transmission licensing or bank chartering. So we really want to be careful that we're not applying that to persons where it doesn't make sense because doing so is 
hugely overbroad, destructive of, you know, liberties and for no purpose, for no actual benefit, if you're not addressing a real ill, because they can't even lose the funds, for example. But that doesn't mean that no laws apply to this activity. Right. So even in the software wallet context, not even multi-sig, just software wallet, you could see someone designing a software wallet that is subtly deceptive or malicious and like somehow destroys or fails to protect the consumer's cryptocurrency when they keep their cryptocurrency in it. And you could see state attorneys general or the FTC launching an unfair deceptive acts and practices case against that developer. Yeah. And you could also see, you know, potential lawsuits in tort or in, you know, in, in other legal forum. So there are laws that apply in that context. They're just not prior restraint laws where we say you're not even allowed to distribute this software unless it's first approved by the SEC or something like that. Right. And the same, I think, applies here. Like, there are probably lots of causes of action that could be brought against someone who is helping you stake your cryptocurrency without ever custodying it for you um, under those other theories. But I don't think it makes sense to apply securities type regulation or money transmission type regulation to those entities, just like it didn't make sense in the, sure. in the, in the, in the realm of wallets. That's totally inept. Yeah. All right. I think that's it. Cool. See you next time, Peter. It's a nice compact one. Right. Leave him wanting more, Jerry. Bye -bye. <laughs> Three people are still listening. <laughs>